We're going to continue our study in the book of Judges. We're going to cover chapters 4 and 5 this morning. Let's ask God to help us. <clears throat> Father, what futility for a human being to pick up the Word of God and attempt to teach truth from it. What uh, folly for any man to think that he can speak on God's behalf. And so we would be really careful this morning to call out to you and ask that your spirit would have uh, free access to all of our lives this morning, that your Holy Spirit would have this um, this power and this openness to to take my mouth and use it to bring glory to the Lord Jesus, to uh, use these words as words of refreshment and hope and excitement for the body of Christ. Lord, perhaps there's a challenge that needs to be struck our hearts and uh, certainly it would be inappropriate for a human being to uh, pretend that it's God who's uh, trying to uh, speak and, and uh, challenge. Instead, it would be far better if we allow the Spirit of God to do so. So we ask that that would take place. We pray, Father, that your word would be clear to us, that we'll take heed to it, we'll not be like the children of Israel and keep running in the opposite direction from what you have to say to us, but that there'll be steady growth in our lives so that uh, the king can have his rightful place, so that his authority will go unchallenged in a, a world like the one we live in, so that uh, others will see our commitment and love for the Lord Jesus and hunger for it themselves, so that we can experience the joy, the peace, the incredible blessing of those people whose lives are uh, lived in service to the king. Help us, we pray, to this end in Jesus' name. Our subject is about Deborah. Actually, Deborah and Barak were a team that uh, God used to bring his people back into relationship with himself. But I think most of the credit goes to Deborah, and we certainly want to uh, take a good look at how she lived and who she was. Chapter 5 is all about Deborah's praise to the Lord. And uh, as I expressed earlier, it's been a challenge to my heart to realize how vastly important it is for those of us who recognize that God has done a good work to stop and praise Him. And uh, truth of the matter, God is continually doing good work. God is always doing something wonderful for us. And we need to focus on that and recognize that and then bring praise to God in conjunction with that. The psalmist had this figured out, and I would uh, like you to read aloud with me this psalm. It's just the first five verses, actually, of Psalm 40. But there's a real expression here of what God has done. Would you read with me together, everyone? I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and to tell them, they would be too many to declare. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5. A very important consideration for God's people. We'll try to look at those again at the end of our time together this morning. <clears throat> Let's uh, try and review 
the situation that is a, has been presented to us. Ehud died. Who was Ehud? Little refresher. CP, were you here last Sunday? I'm putting you on the spot, brother. Do you remember anything about Ehud? The slightest detail. Boy, I'm really putting him on the spot. You're next, so get ready. Oh. Uh, nope, he was a judge. All right. Good, we got that. He was one of the judges. All right. Which hand did he use most often? He used his left hand most often. That was a form of weakness. We all know that left-handers have a real handicap. Uh, a real form of weakness. And yet God used him. Joel, did you bring that out? His left-handedness? All right, good. Uh, there was an oppressor. Uh, a king who had made life miserable for the children of Israel. He was from Moab. Does that sound right? Yeah. And I, was his name Eglon? I got the name right? Okay. Eglon had a weight problem. Ehud took advantage of his weight problem and uh, slew him. And in so doing, was able to relieve the children of Israel of this terrible scourge that Eglon was putting on the people. With him out of power, Israel was able to maintain or reestablish a relationship with God that they had lost. Ehud died. And now the judge was no longer there that they needed. And God's children did evil again. There's a theme that is going to be repeated over and over again as we study the book of Judges. And you already know it. The people sin. God judges them for their evil. And that's exactly what had happened by the time we're starting to read chapter 4. And then, I'm sorry, in his judgment, he used this time a king named Jabin. We'll read about that in just a second. King of Hazor. Now, get this straight, just to show you how bad things were. Under Joshua, 150 years prior to this, they had defeated a king, Jabin, from the city of Hazor. And they had burned and destroyed the city of Hazor. They had already conquered this enemy, this foe. These many years later, I suppose some relative had risen to power again. And because the people did evil after Ehud died, God used this king to judge him, to judge them. And this time it was a terrible scourge. During the time of Joshua, they had been living by faith. And that's what God calls us to do, to live by faith. Now, instead, they were living in the flesh. There's a very important portion of Scripture that I want you to look at this morning before we turn to our text in Judges. And that's in Galatians chapter 5. Excuse me, would you all go there? Galatians chapter 5. And I want you to see what the Spirit of God says to us from God's Word and how it applies to us today. It's easy 
to say, oh, that story about the judges, that was those rotten children of Israel. They're way back there. <coughs> but the reality is, and what we need to take a look at, is that things aren't much different in our lives. And God, knowing this, has given us this direction, this instruction from the Word of God. Galatians 5, please. And we're reading at verse 16. <coughs> so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. So that you do not do what you want. We need to understand as believers that there is conflict out there. That there is a challenge to live a life that is Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. The option is to walk in the flesh. And everybody in this room knows exactly what that's all about. I have pleaded with God, remove that flesh, take it away. Let me be a spiritual person. Let me be a person who, who doesn't have to sin all the time. And, I, and I, would, I, I just long for God to do that. Don't you wish that you could just be holy, holy, holy day after day? Wouldn't life be better? And yet there's sin in our lives. Because we have this struggle with the flesh. God knows. God is concerned about it. God cares about it. And He has given us a capacity to resist the temptation of the flesh, of the sinful nature, and to live a life of, of holiness and righteousness for, for Him. That capacity was given to us when we trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior. That capacity comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's a challenge to us to choose how we're going to walk. He says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. <clears throat> I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that isn't saying that you can slip in and out of salvation. That is saying that these are the characteristics of a person who has not trusted Christ as Savior. That's the way, and we'll call them, the world lives. That's not the way we're supposed to live. But you saw that we are in conflict. And there's this temptation to go back. Everybody here knows what I'm talking about. Everyone here has experienced it. Let's not try and pretend that we've risen above it. We haven't. We've got that struggle and it appears over and over and over again. But God has given us His own Spirit. Put it right within us. Put Him right within us. And that Spirit has the power to give us the victory over sin. Romans talks about the same thing in Romans 5, 6, 7. And Paul says, I want you to consider yourselves what you really are. And that is dead to sin. That's the, that's the message. That's the, the urging. 
alive to the Spirit. Look at the qualities of the Spirit. Verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ, key word coming up here, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the problem. We often get out of step with the Spirit, which means we are walking according to the flesh. And there's a choice that has to be made. A daily choice. And you need the Holy Spirit's power even to have a desire to make that choice. It's there. That's why we gather once in a while, once a week or a couple times a week, to encourage each other with these things. Can't do it by ourselves. God has not made us to do it by ourselves. We're made to live in communion and fellowship with one another and with God. And so we come and we encourage each other in these things. Walk in the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's God's call to our lives. Well, that's what was missing in uh, this time back in the, uh, in the days of the judges. Under Joshua, the people were living by faith. But under the judges, when the judge was there and was encouraging and challenging and helping them, they lived by faith. But when that judge died, it didn't take long. Without that constant reminder, without that challenge, without that fellowship, before they had slipped back into living in the flesh. And it created problems for them. <clears throat> Here they were, now facing the very same enemy, and this time, they were defeated. This time, that enemy won. And so here's Jabin, the king, who is putting a real scourge on the whole country. Judges chapter 4, if you would, I'm going to read there. You can follow along if you like. Judges 4, verse 1, And Ehud died. The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haroseth Hagoyim, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. <clears throat> she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River, and I will and give them into your hands. At this point, it seemed as though the situation was hopeless. Look at some of the facts that we've just read about. Jabin, a powerful ruler, had a very well-trained army. He also had a very competent general, Sisera. 
And these two together managed to make life miserable for the people in Israel. Now, this, remember, was God's judgment. This was designed by God to bring them to repentance. Suffering, pain, struggle is sometimes used in our lives to bring us to repentance. Not all the time, but sometimes it is. And we need to be willing to acknowledge that and to willing to take a look at that. God's heart is that He wants communion with us. He wants communion with His people. And when that's not there, He may use what we call chastening to remind us of our situation and our relationship with Him and bring us back into fellowship with Himself. Jabin and Sisera were the chastening devices. They were the ones that God was using to squeeze the people and to put pressure on them to bring them back to themselves. Well, as I said, the situation looked hopeless. Uh, a very powerful king, a competent general, and the text makes it very clear that they had a weapon that was uh, much more powerful than anything the children of Israel had. 900 chariots of iron. We don't see this in the text that we're looking at right now. You have to actually go into Judges chapter 5, verse 8, where Deborah is singing her song of praise to the Lord. And she points out that Israel had no weapons. They had no training. They had virtually no leadership. Now, put that against a powerful king with a competent general who has 900 iron chariots. Is it any wonder that for all these years, I think it said 20 years or so, they were under this cruel oppression. They couldn't do anything about it. Situation seemed desperate. They had a very real problem. But I want you to think about this. Was the problem the fact that Jabin and Sisera and all the enemy oppressed those people? Was that the real problem? I'm going to say no. The real problem was a spiritual problem. The real problem that those people had and the reason that they were experiencing the affliction that they were was that they had a spiritual problem. A man named Dan Smith is the chancellor at Emmaus Bible College where I work. And when he prays, he often says, Lord, you know our problems. And you know our biggest problems are spiritual problems. You know our greatest needs are our spiritual needs. When I first heard that, I thought, I'm not sure I buy into that. Well, it's been 20 years of hearing Dr. Smith pray that way. And I've become a believer. I think the real issue in our lives centers around these spiritual things. And if the spiritual problems can be dealt with, other problems fall into place. Not necessarily are they solved, but they can be dealt with in a whole new and wonderful way. CP's mom is dying of cancer. That's a serious problem. And that should cause pain and ache in CP's heart to the point where he probably couldn't even sleep. Has that ever happened? No? What's wrong? Why aren't you reacting the way you should be? The reason is because you have some peace, don't you? You have some contentment. You have some confidence that God is in charge of this situation. And the spiritual issue 
is that which overrides the other issues. And so he can deal with those things and actually have peace. He doesn't have to run home to his mom every weekend. He can trust God. Well, you can look at various problems in your life. And I I would like to submit to you that if you were to deal with the spiritual area related to those problems, the problems themselves would seem less significant and seem to have more of a solution. Our spiritual problems are our greatest problems. Our spiritual needs are our greatest needs. And if we can keep that mentality before us, it will help us seek God because God is the author, the supplier of our spiritual well-being. Here were a group of people that in essence had forsaken God. They had fallen into and returned to the sins God had delivered them from. He had done that once with Othniel. He had done it a second time with Ahad. You'd think they'd learned the lesson. But they didn't. Now let's not be too harsh with the people in the book of Judges. Because you're looking at somebody that still has a problem learning the lesson. And the truth is, I'm looking at a bunch of people that still have a problem learning the lesson. That's why we need this teaching. That's why we need to go back into the book. God provided another judge for them. This time, it was a judge named Deborah. And right away, something unique pops up before us. Deborah is not a male type name, is it? And that's good because Deborah was not a male. Deborah was a female. She was the only female judge that God used. In our culture, people would get all upset with that and say there wasn't equal opportunity here, God. But the truth was, in God's economy, He had called out to the men to provide leadership for the people. It was their role. It was their responsibility. To raise up a female judge makes a major statement about the quality of the men among the children of Israel. What message do you get? I'm going to ask this to the group. I want some response. What message do you get when it has been God's pattern for years to establish male leadership, to assign male the role of of, uh, directing and guiding and leading both the individual family, the home, and the, and the congregation and so on. What message comes to you, to your mind, about the quality of men? Failure. There was failure. Give me another word. Lazy. Lazy. Give me another word. Weak. Weak. Give me another word. Have we run out yet? Got one, Joel? Apathetic. Who are we talking about here, guys? Let's be careful. Let's put some nice words in there. Maybe sweet. No, we don't know that. All the words that we've used to describe those people are words that we need to look at and realize often are characteristic of our of ourselves. God <clears throat> has called us to spiritual headship in the home, in the church, And he has said that we are to do a job 
for him that is vitally needed. That was the case among the children of Israel. And God looked around and guess what? There wasn't a man among them that he could count on. What a tragedy. You're filling out some sheets. Some of you have gotten those from Josh of areas of responsibility. Things that you'll do in order to serve the Lord by serving this church. Do you know how easy it is to look at that list and find the one that is the least amount of work? The one that is the least painful or the least of value? And say, this is what I'm going to do. God wants people who say, you know what? I'm going to have to sacrifice a little bit. I'm going to have to work a little bit. I'm going to have to put a little bit out here for the sake of the body of this congregation of believers. I'm going to have to be willing to set aside myself and give myself to other people. Now, it's kind of neat that God has established it that when we serve others, whether it be in our families or in the church, when we serve others, we find fulfillment, we find joy, we find a sense of, uh, of presence with God. The fact is, God said He went so far as to say, if you are willing to serve other people, I give you credit for actually serving me. Even if it's this business of pouring a cup of cold water and bringing it to somebody. When you do that for one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, I give you credit as though you brought it right to the throne and handed it to me. You're serving the king. And there's wonder, there's joy, there's fulfillment when it comes to service. Sounds backwards, but that's the way it is in God's economy. There was opportunity for the men of the culture to rise up and say, we need to provide leadership. We need to provide spiritual vitality. We need to uh, be those who are willing to uh, lead the congregation in, in humbling themselves and in prayer and in committing our, our, ourselves to a life of righteousness rather than a life of sin. There weren't any of them around. No men around. And so God raises up this woman, Deborah, a wonderful lady. And we're thrilled to know a little bit about her. In fact, we know very little about her. What we do know is, is mainly here in this portion. Um, we know she was married to Lapidoth. Big deal. Uh, we know she was a prophetess. This is a big deal. We need to talk about that, but uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get that in just a minute. She was also one of the judges. One of those people that uh, led and directed the people of God. But as far as we can tell... She was alone as the leader of Israel. Now, thank God for a lady named Deborah. Thank God that there was someone that God could use in this capacity. I want to talk for a second about this prophet business. I think it's an important concept. The best I can find the definition of that is one who speaks on the basis of revelation from God. 
Before the entire uh, scriptures were given to us, this was an even more important position than it really is today. Those who speak on the basis of revelation from God. I think the prophet is still an important character, important figure in, among God's people. But especially before they had the written word to, to handle and evaluate. Here's one who would bring the revelation of God to their minds. Uh, sometimes that person would speak the future. And we have record in the Old Testament of prophets, those who speak on the basis of revelation from God, actually telling what's going to happen in the coming months, the coming years, the coming decades and centuries. We uh, depend on those prophets. A part of the reason that we can have trust and confidence and faith in the Word of God and the Holy Scripture is that there have been hundreds of prophecies by these people that have been given and have come true. There were many of them associated with the Messiah. It's an excellent study. I recommend Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Get it and look at some of the prophecies related to Jesus, the coming Messiah. And you can see that things said hundreds of years in advance. And by the way, it's been substantiated by the finding of archaeology, the Dead Sea Scrolls and other evidence, that those writings were hundreds of years before Christ. Predictions that have only been, could only be fulfilled in, in Christ. And so we have the future prophetic utterances that came true to perfection in the person of Christ. And I read the Old Testament and I say, I wonder if there's any validity to that. And then I read the New Testament and I see that what was taught in the Old Testament by the prophets actually came to light in the New Testament. And that gives me confidence. That gives me uh, courage to believe what the book says and to put it into practice in my life. Now, not all the prophecies have been fulfilled. There's hundreds that are yet to be fulfilled. But based on what we know of what has already been fulfilled, pretty good track record. The book's doing pretty good. Those prophets were speaking truth and it was recorded and passed on to us. That prophet also revealed God's will for the present. They spoke truth. They spoke the revelation of God. And here was Deborah speaking the promises of God, the direction of God to the children of Israel. They came to her often. In fact, it says she set up court, verse 5, under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. That would be a location um, about on parallel with the city of Jerusalem as far as north-south was concerned. It'd be closer to the coast than where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem, in my mind, is kind of sitting near the top of the, of the Dead Sea. Can you picture it on a map of Israel? That's where she was located. It would have been west of Jerusalem, not too far from the coast. That's where she set up court. And all of Israel came to have their disputes decided by this person. This wonderful lady who God was using in a powerful way. What is evident in her life is that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the direction I get from this, and there should be a lot of teaching that comes to me, the direction I get from this 
is that I need to be one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes that we should continually, Ephesians chapter 5, we should continually be, be I'm sorry, chapter 4, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Important concept, something that we need to regularly evaluate. This lady was in a very unique situation. As I've said, very rare that a woman was chosen for leadership. One of three in the Old Testament that was chosen as a prophet. We saw in verse 5 where the entire nation came to her for wisdom and direction. As far as I can tell in reading history, she was the only woman to ever lead Israel. Here is a very, very important person. And we need to take notice of some of the things she did. Let's look a little bit at her leadership. I love this. She saw a need and was committed to do something about it. God has called you to have a mind, a heart like Deborah's. To look around and see where there's need. And not just identify need and then pass it off for somebody else to do. But to see a need and then by God's help, come up with a way that something can be done about it. You folks are good about that at this local church and I appreciate that. We need to continue that. We need to sharpen that. We need to improve that. We need to be looking for needs. Needs in each other's lives. Needs in our community. Needs in our fellowship. And then saying, I want to do something about it. With God's strength, with God's help, I want to do something about it. Not pass it off to someone else. Her leadership was clear in that way. She was humble before God. And she was willing to enlist help. This isn't something that she said, I'm going to do all by myself. In fact, you see right away that she went and found Barak. And, and when we read a little bit more about Barak, you'll see that, that he was a reluctant warrior. In fact, let's go there right now. Verse 8, after, he had after she had given him God's command, Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. A lot of different things have been said about Barak and about this, this uh, decision that he made. He's been called a lot of names for uh, saying it this way. I, I want to put him in the best possible light. I want to say that here's a person who probably recognized in Deborah a woman of integrity, a woman of holiness, a woman whose God's spirit was at work in. And his, his commitment was, that's the kind of person I want with me. Now, his failure was that it was God who was commanding him. It was God who was going to keep his promise. It was God who was going to be the one that would go with him. And so Barak really failed in this whole business of saying, Deborah, if you don't go, I'm not going. What he should have said was, I will trust God and move out in faith. He didn't do that. We'll get back to him later. She was humble. Before God, she enlisted help at God's command. Then she went to motivate that help. And as you read the text, you see that she was there encouraging, telling about the commands of God, telling about the promises of God, and encouraging Barak to do what he was asked by God to do. She'd even developed a plan, probably at God's direction. But she suggested what he should do. Get 10,000 men, head them up to Mount Tabor, Hide in the hills until you're ready to confront Sisera 
and his army. Good plan. Deborah had faith in God. She knew something of the power of God. She knew the history of God's working with her people. And you and I have this availability to us. We can take this book and read in the Old and the New Testament and see God at work. We can understand the power of God. But that isn't enough for faith. She also knew that God had given commands. In fact, we saw them in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. She knew what God's direction was. And we also are people who can go to the book and find God's commands. Now, you take the power of God, put it together with the commands of God. She also knew God's promises. The promises of God. And uh, I think it's verse 14 where she says, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. That was a promise. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Faith is not without reason. Faith is not blind. Faith takes what we know of the power of God what we know of God's command, and what we know of His promises puts them all together and moves ahead. And that's the way we need to live our lives as well. Well, let's quickly look at the military situation. Uh, already put some of this forward, but Israel was outmanned. Uh, we don't know the exact number of troops that Sisera had, but Gary Enrich in his book, uh, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay, suggests that when there, was, when there were 900 chariots they uh, were a small fraction of most of the armies. So in other words, there were hundreds of foot soldiers to go along with those chariots. And uh, clear truth, Barak was outnumbered, outmanned. He was totally outsupplied. The chariots and then the men of war would have a full battle uh, array, outmanned, outsupplied. According to what we read in, in uh, chapter 5, or what we read in chapter 5, Israel had none of that. I, I suppose they could pick up a stick along the way. But they had either zero, I don't know if it meant no swords whatsoever. It, it just was the idea that they were very ill-equipped. Finally, Israel was outpositioned. When we read where they actually went, it was to the Kishon River Valley. And it was a flat area. Um, I'm not, I didn't follow this up, but I should have. I won't even bring it up. Uh, <laughs> something about the Battle of Armageddon. But anyway, a flat area where the chariots and the foot soldiers together in combination would have a tremendous advantage over only foot soldiers. So everything was bad. Everything was negative. But... As Deborah had told Barak, God was on their side. I hope we uh, take a huge lesson from this. I've been praying and praying about my next door neighbors. And I'm such a coward when it comes to speaking up for God to those folks. What I have to do is take 
the truth of what we're learning here and realize it's God who's given me the commandment. It's God who will do the saving. He has the power. It's God who promises blessing. And all I have to do is move ahead knowing that God is on my side. Witness to those people and allow the Spirit to do His work. Well, what actually happened? And you can read along in, in the rest of chapter 4 and try and figure it out. But we also have to go to chapter 5 to get the details. Here they were, out manned, out supplied, out positioned. And it was during the dry season. There should have been no trouble at all for Sisera to wheel his chariots around and make a mess of things. But, from chapter 5, verse 21, we learn that God sent a torrential rain in the dry season. Now, those of you that are familiar with Southern California, you've heard about the dry seasons. Every year, the rains just stop from, what, June through October? It's it's terrible. There's nothing. Other uh, parts of the country have that same kind of a dry season. In Israel especially, uh, when it was a dry season, it was dry. It simply didn't rain. And so, I'm sure that Sisera didn't have a thought about going into this area and using his chariots in combat. But, God had a surprise for him. He sent a torrential rain. Instead of being an advantage, evidently the chariots became a huge liability. They were absolutely ineffective. The result was that the troops panicked. And I don't have it written down anywhere, so I can't say this with confidence, but at least it's a uh, something that I, I'm wondering about. Perhaps even those troops, those massive number of foot soldiers, in their panic, dropped their swords. I don't know. Some way, the troops from Barrack's army got a hold of some swords and used those swords to create a horrendous slaughter. In fact, so much so that Israel was able to wipe out Sisera's entire army. That's quite a victory. And again, it wasn't Barak that did it at all. He and his men just kind of kind of reaped the benefits from what was going on there. The death of Sisera was the ultimate uh, source of victory. When uh, his army was defeated, we read later on in the chapter that Sisera hopped off his chariot, verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hegoyim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, verse 17, however, fled on foot. So, uh, the outcome is this. Barak did not enjoy the satisfaction of utterly defeating Sisera. Deborah had, by the way, prophesied that. God used a very unlikely source and He used a very unlikely method. Let's look at verse 17. Sisera ever fled on foot. He uh, came to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite because they, there were friendly relations between Jabin, that's Sisera's king, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. 
Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a, a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes by and asks you, is there anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, this is delightful, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple <coughs> sorry, into the ground and he died. <coughs> she was a very unlikely source of defeat for Sisera. In fact, he felt it was so unlikely that he asked her to keep guard while he took a nap. I think you'll realize that the method that was used was a very unlikely method. Um, I don't know how many people have been put to death by driving a nail through their head. Sounds a little strange, <clears throat> but very effective. Very effective. So much so, verse 22, when Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent pig through his temple, dead. Highly unlikely method. <clears throat> well, quickly, what does God want us to learn from all this? I think there are several things. We'll do them rather rapidly. Number one, God would have us know this. Sin destroys. Make no doubt about it. It's fun for a while, but it destroys. It's death, people. Let's keep that fact before us. Second, no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstance, God can use you. God wants to use you. God is delighted to use you. He could do it all himself, but he chooses to use us. If he puts us in a position of leadership, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we must be dependent on God. Faith in God is based on God's power, God's promise, and obedience to the Word of God. There's something else, and we won't have time to develop this. But in chapter 5, <clears throat> Deborah includes the other tribes of Israel who weren't included in this battle. And she has some questions. She says of Reuben, Verse 15. In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the district of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Sometimes when God calls us to battle, we respond by searching our hearts, don't we? <clears throat> Instead of heeding the call, we kind of scratch our heads and say, I wonder what that noise was. She talks about Gilead, stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. It was the people of Zebulun who rest their very lives. So did Naphtali in the heights of the fields. Not all God's people will join in the battle. <clears throat> I 
I want to go back to this. <clears throat> so I think these are words that we should take with us that will help us remember the real message of this portion of Scripture. Would you read it with me again? I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and to tell them, they would be too many to declare. Father, it surely is a true statement. And as we look at our lives and how you've worked in our lives, we know that the psalmist uh, was portraying exactly what we've experienced. And yet, God, you find us uh, wandering. You find us unfaithful. <clears throat> and my heart's desire, Father, is that, uh, that I would be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus. That this church would be filled with people who are faithful followers of Christ. Not uh, walking by the flesh, but walking in the Spirit. We need Your help. We need the help of one another. And I ask You, God, to uh, make the lesson of Deborah and Barak real in our lives and help us to recognize regularly that You're the one that took us out of that slimy pit. You established our feet. You put us on a place of blessing and honor. And we want to live our lives for You. Help us to this end, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.